NAMIC members can now receive a 15% discount on new customer subscriptions to NASDAQ Board Portal. NASDAQ Board Vantage is a powerful corporate communication platform and online solution that helps companies run their board meetings, organize, share materials with directors, and document board activities in a secure online environment. More than half of Fortune 100 companies trust NASDAQ Board Vantage, a NAMIC national market member, to provide streamlined corporate governance services. To learn what the online portal will allow your company to do, visit www.namic.org slash products slash boardvantage. Hello everyone and welcome to an all new episode of Insurance Uncovered. This podcast is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies and is your source for insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. I'm your host, Kathy Imus, and today we're uncovering third-party litigation funding. Harold Kim of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce shares a warning on how the pervasive business model is raising national and economic security risks. Plus, Bio's effort to collect climate change data from insurers draws new concern from the NAIC. And at the IAIS annual conference, cyber risk experts share their perspective on the growing risk and importance of effective prevention measures. The National Association of Insurance Commissioners has expressed what it termed its deep concern over a proposal from the Treasury's Federal Insurance Office to collect data on climate risks from property casualty insurers. A letter from NAIC leaders suggests FIO should leverage the expertise of state-based regulators to produce a data call best suited to the task. In its letter, the NAIC argues, quote, it is unclear how FIO will use the data they intend to collect and it is likely that any analysis will be misinterpreted and produce fallacious results in trying to identify climate risk. NAMIC and other industry trade associations have already spoken out about the FIOS proposal. NAMIC Senior Vice President of Federal and Political Affairs, Jimmy Grandy, says it doesn't take a massive data collection to know that climate-related losses have been increasing in recent years. What we need is effective public policy to better protect and prepare Americans for the next disaster. Having FIO collect vast amounts of data without a clear purpose or benefit will not help Americans in their recovery or preparedness efforts. Insurers have been at the forefront of planning for and responding to the risks of climate change to policyholders and their communities and have been among the leading voices calling for greater funding for mitigation projects and communities particularly those long neglected by federal spending to prevent the losses from even occurring. NAMIC is working with association members to develop and provide comments echoing many of the NAIC concerns. Meanwhile, the International Association of Insurance Supervisors recently met for its annual conference in Santiago, Chile, where panelists and participants discussed the evolving role of the insurance sector in meeting emerging economic and social challenges. Conversations centered around diversity, equity and inclusion, changing consumer preferences, macroeconomic risks, climate risk, and the insurance capital standard. Cyber risk expert and CEO of Field Effect Matt Holland 
also shared his perspective on the growing cyber threat and the importance of effective cyber risk prevention and hygiene for cyber resilience. He noted the difficulties of attributing state-sponsored cyber attacks as these actors are frequently able to avoid detection. That poses difficulties for insurers seeking to limit their underwriting exposure by using this as an exclusion. Ironically, uh, intelligence agencies try to look like low-grade attackers, and low-grade attackers try to look like intelligence agencies. So the line between what is very definitive nation-state technology versus what is not is blurry and very difficult to make sense of. Um, the other thing is, you know, thinking about the motivation of an attacker, uh, if the, uh, the insurance world adopts the exclusion that nation-states, uh, you know, you're not going to get paid if a nation-state um, causes uh, damage to your company, what will happen is everybody will try to look like a low-grade attacker. You know, ransomware actors want to get paid, and if this is a blocker, they'll find a way around it. It is just the reality of how good uh, hackers uh, unfortunately are. They're lazy, but they're, they're quite good. Holland warns that a false confidence could be put into state actor exclusions and recommends insurers not focus on the attacker type in the policy language because hackers will find a way around it. Though not a new issue to the insurance community, Third-party litigation is getting renewed attention these days thanks to a new report recently issued by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. The Chamber's new research paper, published through its Institute for Legal Reform, points to a growing concern that the large volume of foreign-sourced money pouring into U.S. civil litigation against U.S. companies and industries is creating a serious national security risk. On today's Unscripted, NAMIC CEO Neil Aldridge talks with Harold Kim, the president of the Chamber's Institute for Legal Reform, about this new threat, how it's gaining traction in the U.S., and what can be done about it. Joining me on the podcast today is Harold Kim. Uh, Harold is a well-known figure, not only in the business community, but also the insurance community, as Harold heads up the Institute for Legal Reform at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And He's been in that role for a good while and well-known uh, in the business community, the legal reform community, as a, as a champion for legal reform efforts and works closely with the insurance industry. Many NAMIC members are also part of the Institute for Legal Reform and, and trying to bring some sanity, much-needed sanity, to our legal system. So, Harold, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. Hey, Neil. Thanks a lot for having me. Pleasure to be here. No, it's really great. And one of the reasons we're, we're, you joined us today is we could talk about a whole number of issues, of course, but the Institute just released a new research paper, white paper, that we found particularly interesting and wanted to draw some attention to it on the issue of third-party litigation funding. That topic is certainly something not new to us, either organization. We have spent a lot of time over the past decade working on its various forms of third-party litigation funding, but the Chamber and the Institute for Legal Reform really have highlighted a new angle on this, and that's a, a potential national security threat uh, that could shape take shape uh, in the form of third-party litigation funding, where perhaps you have foreign actors, China, Russia, pick whoever, might decide that this is a clever way to 
uh, access and influence not only uh, U.S. corporate secrets in, in the form of discovery that they might learn through the litigation process, but also just influencing U.S. policy on a number of fronts that may not be particularly in our national security interest. So this is a new angle, uh, a new particular problem with this phenomenon of third-party litigation funding, and one we're going to explore in some detail today. So, Harold, why don't we just jump right in? So just give us a little history of third-party litigation funding, kind of a little bit about where it began and kind of where we are today. Yeah, you know, TPLF, as we call it, uh, first of all, finds its way into a lot of different forms of financing. But uh, when you look at the origins of third-party litigation funding, which is basically, you know, the outside investment in lawsuits, whether it's directly with law firms or even with plaintiffs on, on a small dollar basis, you know, this phenomenon really started in Australia in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it really uh, was a financing mechanism because in Australia, they, they didn't have the contingency fee structure that's so prevalent here in the United States. Uh, but since then, um, financing of litigation has spread exponentially. Uh, it is certainly very present all throughout Europe. It's in the United Kingdom. And unfortunately, it has grown exponentially here in the United States. Uh, and, you know, the Institute for Legal Reform has been ringing the alarm bells for the last decade saying, look, this is a real problem to our civil justice system, because I think fundamentally, it really creates more unpredictability. Uh, it protracts settlement negotiations and it, it really inflates settlement values. And so, you know, when you have a defendant who's trying to assess litigation risk, it's really hard, you know, to assess and resolve a dispute if you have a third party interest with no real skin in the merits of the game, except for a financial you know, return of 40%. And so that I think is probably one of the more troubling features of it. A lot of good things come out of Australia, you know. Whether it's Foster's beer and Australian rules football, but litigation financing is certainly not one of them. Yeah, no doubt. And and this is this we're going to move into the topic of the paper here. But this is you know third party litigation funding. This particular problem we're exploring this today is different than the the kind of original you know small time we're going to give you a loan to live on you plaintiff and you don't have to pay us back unless you win and it was an interest rate play and you know with states have taken some action on some of those uh issues this is a much bigger you know investing it for all sorts of reasons at a, at a systemic level very different problem yeah, there's there's a lot more money. It's much more sophisticated financing being done through private equity firms or hedge funds. And, um, you know, the level of analysis of any particular case is is done, you know, through a lot of sophistication uh, from lawyers, financiers. And so um, it, it's different from the consumer lending, you know, where you get a thirty thousand dollar loan if you have a car accident. But the interest rates are like a two, you know, two hundred percent. But it just goes to tell you how how malleable these financial instruments are, because it constantly grows into other areas, and it's really hard to keep track of what's happening, just given how opaque this industry is. Yeah, no doubt. So let, let's explore the topic of the paper itself here. Sure. Um, so talk a little bit about the 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 angle of of national security, the portfolio lending that's going on, potential influence of foreign actors. Uh, explore that topic with us. 
Yeah, you know, I think uh, as we learn more about the funding industry, which I mentioned is opaque, you know, one of the things that we discovered is that these funders are taking investments from private uh, private sovereign wealth funds, or excuse me, sovereign wealth funds um, that, you know, could, could be anywhere from, you know, uh, investment funds in the Middle East uh, to China to Russia. We, we just don't know. And I think it begs the question, especially because we don't know the level of control and influence uh, the investors have in the course of litigation. And we do think that there is control. Uh, it begs the question as to what happens if litigation is brought against the Lockheed Martin or critical infrastructure for the United States. And during the course of discovery, there's information that is shared. You might have a protective order. But if there are foreign influences or foreign entities that have access to that information, does that not create some significant questions of national security? As we know that, you know, we we protect our intellectual property. We protect you know, our technologies because it's so critical to the security of this country from national defense to energy to tech, just uh, regular technological applications. And so, you know, these are things that are an important aspect that policymakers and government officials should know about. And we think that the problem here is that because the industry is so fundamentally opaque that there could be a lot of mischief at play. And it's really important for policymakers and others to get out ahead of this issue and start asking these important questions before it really, really stings us. Yeah, I know the paper highlights a couple of examples of some specific cases where uh, potential problems could exist. You may want to talk about those and then we'll talk a little bit also, you know, about uh, where we might go from here, but maybe maybe spend a minute on just some of the specific cases. There was a, there was a Chevron case uh, in, in highlighted in the paper uh, that illustrated some particular problems. Well, Chevron, you know, they had the uh, very infamous Ecuadorian uh, environmental litigation, which really blew open the lid on kind of the seedy nature of litigation funding. You know, the fact that the litigation funders were were heavily involved you know, with some of the underlying claims that were pursued extraterritorially in other countries where that judgment was then brought here to the U.S. And, you know, the the federal district court judge in New York, um, real Judge Kaplan, uh, really uncovered significant questionable um, litigation conduct, in, including the ghostwriting of expert reports. And, and it was a prime example of some of the troubling aspects of litigation funding. But then in the second Chevron case, the Garabe, I, I know I'm probably mispronouncing the case, but in that case, the litigation funding agreement um, was disclosed and it showed a significant level of control that the funders had over the litigation itself. And so, you know, it, it, it all leads to this narrative that if you have that level of control from a litigation funder and the litigation funders are receiving capital investments from sovereign wealth funds, and it's a particularly, you know, non-transparent area, then there could be significant issues in terms of, again, how information is shared during the course of litigation. And it could be a patent dispute. You know, we know that there is a significant amount of litigation in the patent space and the funders are involved. So the it begs the question, OK, what is the foreign influence here? And is there an access point to undermine national security beyond the traditional means? Because using our court system would be a particularly uh, novel 
yet effective avenue to undermine national interests, as, yeah, as, as Mike Leiter points out in the paper. Yeah, no doubt. I think that's particularly uh, troublesome, you know, beyond the impact it has on the general tort environment, the sort of poison, you know, uh, toxic environment of dragging on litigation and and trying to re- get a return on your investment and the impact that has on just the overall tort environment uh, negatively. This is, you know, when you think about the actual information that could be accessed uh, through, and you mentioned, you know, national security companies in particular, it's, it's, it's a troubling uh, exercise that that I hope kind of begins to maybe change the debate about this. We've, we've worked yeah. and worked and worked and we've worked together, the two organizations and others in the industry for, you know, over a decade in trying to <clears throat> bring some reform in this area. And we've had some success, mostly yes. on the consumer litigation side, I would say. We've been more successful there yeah. uh, than we have in, the, in, in this side of the, of the equation. So let's talk about the paper does line out some potential reforms uh, that policymakers ought to explore. I, for one, I, I just continue to, it sort of mystifies me that that the judicial system itself, the judges don't take more of the role of sort of the policeman in this question. Right. Um, but there doesn't seem to be that happening. So let's <laughs> talk about, you know, what we can see about potential reforms here. Well, you know, I think the the primary antidote to this problem is transparency, you know, bringing more sunlight to what is happening. Now, certainly in the course of litigation, you know, we have advocated for discovery rules changes, either before the Federal Rules Advisory Committee to amend Rule 26 to make sure that during the inception of litigation, you're turning over funding agreements. But I will say that there are a handful of federal district courts that are starting to understand the importance of transparency. So judges, federal district court judges, are requiring disclosures in their courtrooms as part of local rules changes. Most recently, we saw that with Judge Connolly in Delaware, uh, the Northern District of California has it for class action lawsuits, uh, the District of New Jersey. But we think having a national rules change on it will certainly for litigants, you know, bring more stability to the litigation process. As for the national security concerns, I mean, there are different avenues for transparency here. You know, one angle is the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which has been on the books for a very long time. And those require disclosures. You know, if you are representing a foreign interest, either in the hallways of Congress or, you know, in other capacities, the public ought to know. And so there's there's a similar potential policy corollary here that could be, that could be pursued on that end with a potential amendment to the Foreign Agents Registration Act to make it very clear that litigation funding arrangements have to be disclosed. And, you know, specifically when it comes to the investment activities of sovereign wealth funds. I mean, you go to Burford Capital, they're uh, they're one of the largest litigation funders in the world. Uh, you go to their website and in their annual reports, they do say that they receive funding from sovereign wealth funds. They don't say from who, but there should be some more detail about that. And I think the federal government should uh, and national security interests should certainly be privy to that information. Yeah, the. Uh registered foreign agent question seems to be it, it's again it's a, I, I suppose it's just a testament to the the way this has evolved over time but it's a little surprising that that's already not covered in that act given the scope of it as it relates to other 
interactions with the governmental entities, whether it be regulatory agencies or Congress or whatever. You'd think that judiciary would be part of that sort of naturally, yeah. but uh, clearly it's not, probably wasn't contemplated, um, probably a testament to the cleverness of the third-party litigation funders here to some degree, but um, it, it seems as though that's a pretty, should be, now nothing in Congress is ever easy, but it should be <laughs> fairly easy uh, to make an argument that would be kind of difficult to, to um, you know, argue against if we could limit it to the foreign actors in particular. Uh, right. That seems a logical cl- uh, case to me. I mean, I don't, I don't know that we're ever going to, and, and maybe we shouldn't on one hand ever, you know, get to the point where we just sort of make the argument that this should just be, you know, a banned practice, um, period. I personally could probably be persuaded that maybe it should be, but uh, as a policy matter, I'm not sure that that's going to be successful. But I think you're right. Ultimately, here disclosure seems to be uh, the best antiseptic uh, to this. It would be awfully hard to defend you know, Chinese investment in a particularly obvious national security case, for instance. Yeah, you know, this national security point was actually um, discussed at a recent funding conference. I think it happened last month up in New York. Um, And there was a head of litigation from a major defense contractor that actually zeroed in on this very concern that during the course of discovery, you know, information about certain technologies, weapon systems, you know, certain applications could fall into the hands of foreign enemies through the litigation process. And so, you know, having having that come from a head of litigation from a defense firm, um, you know, is something that should definitely raise eyebrows. Yeah, no, no doubt. And, you know, we, we we talk about the influence of, you know, third party litigation funding as it relates to phenomenons like social inflation. The cases right. go on longer. They just cost more. Yeah. Uh, we talk about the third party litigation funding and just the general uh negative effect it has on the tort system broadly speaking but um yeah and, and I, I would hope we have some chance to make some difference on this question yeah you, you you mentioned the impact on the tort system and it's clear there is an impact um but there is also an impact on the consumers and there is a case in point coming out of california involving tom girardi who's the trial lawyer from Aaron Brockovich fame, you know, he represented a class of claimants in the Lion Air crash. And um, his firm basically embezzled all of the settlement proceeds or a big significant chunk of it. And so he's declared bankruptcy. Uh, His clients have gone after his firm, but they've also gone after the litigation funders who bankrolled the underlying litigation. Council Financial, I think, is what they're called. And, And so there is a consumer impact because the funders are taking their share of sure. whatever the proceeds are from a settlement and you know the little guy the the class action claimants the clients are left holding the bag or holding nothing so they now have to resort to litigation in order to vindicate their rights and so that's just you know the tip of the iceberg we think in terms of how these funders are operating and again it's happening on a nationwide basis and it's having an effect from the micro to the macro yeah, no doubt. We don't. I know the paper has mentioned some dollar amounts. I think maybe upwards of seven billion dollars. We think perhaps that's being invested currently. We don't really know. That's sort of a an educated guess, and yeah. so it's probably a conservative guess. It uh, <laughs> would be uh, would be my uh, guess at the question. But that's one of the other problems is we don't really know the size of the dollars that we're talking about here. That's right. 
That's right. Yeah. Hence well, the reason here, for more transparency. It, it is. It, it just seems pretty simple. If we could dis- get disclosure, I think we would definitely have a better, uh, not only insight into its impact, but likely have the effect of, uh, of chasing out the particularly bad actors uh, yeah. in, in this practice. As I said, I, you could probably convince me that we ought to just ban it. I don't know that we're going to win that one overall. Um, but I think we can uh, make some progress on the disclosure front, if nothing else. Listen, Harold, thanks for joining us today. Thanks to the Institute for writing the paper. Um, and, and thanks for being a partner to NAMIC and the insurance industry. Uh, we've worked together on these fronts for on these issues for a long time, and we'll continue to do so in the future. Well, you guys are great partners. Let's keep up the fight. 2023 is going to be a busy year. And thanks for the opportunity, Neil. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Take care. To read the full research paper from the Institute for Legal Reform, just check out the link in this episode's show notes. And that's all for this week's episode of Insurance Uncovered. We'll be back again in two weeks on December 14th for our final episode of 2022. Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a wonderful day.